Hi, everyone. I'm your host today, Kim Winter, Global CEO of Logistics Executive Group. Thanks for joining us for another engaging podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, Logistics Executive TV, to make sure you don't miss any episodes. Today, we've got a very special treat. We're being joined by the three amigos of the global air cargo scene. We've got Stan Rate. Stan is the President and CEO of Strategic Aviation Solutions. And Stan is joining us today from uh, over there in Montreal. He was previously CEO of Airbridge Cargo Airlines and prior to that with KLM. Welcome, Stan. Thank you. And we've also got Ram Menon. Ram Menon was for about 20 years the uh, DSV for Air Cargo over at uh, Emirates. So very well known in the Middle East and globally. Hey, Ram. Hey, Kim. Good to be here. We've also got uh, Des Vitanis, former head of uh, Air Cargo at Etihad, was with Golf and with Menzies Aviation for quite a while as well. So we've been joined by these gentlemen today to talk about the, the air cargo world. Aviation world in particular has been one of the hardest hit by the current pandemic, one of the first hit, one of the hardest hit, and probably one of the toughest, longest organisations or longest uh, industries to come out of this pandemic situation. So we're going to talk about a number of things today. We're going to really look to try and focus on moving forward in terms of the industry and in terms of aviation and air cargo in particular. So, Des, uh, welcome. I didn't allow you to say hi. How are you, Des? You're over in, uh, where are you today? I'm in the Algarve in Portugal, uh, Kim, so it's uh, great to be joining my other two amigos. Very good. And good to see excellent. you as well. Ram, where are you based? Uh, Kim, I'm in uh, Luxembourg. You're in Luxembourg. Enjoying some good weather here. So thanks again, gentlemen. Um, so jumping straight into it today, I mean, we've seen what's going on in the industry, um, plenty of news about it, as plenty of uh, media coverage. Really just wanted, but let's just get a quick heads up from each of you as to the current state, um, particularly air cargo globally, just what's the current situation? Give us a few headliners on what you're seeing happening at the moment, and we're going to spend quite some time today talking about the ways forward, the options, your ideas um, from your various experiences in the, in the industry globally. So maybe Des, I mind starting with you, perhaps you can set us the scene and, and give us a bit of an overview from your perspective as to where, where Air Cargo is at currently and what are some of the big issues. Well, Kim, um, just before I, I retired, I, I filled a, a job as the global head of cargo at IATA and um, and it probably was a, a fitting way to end the career because at IATA, well, my prime job was trying to ensure that everybody knew the value of air cargo that didn't work within the industry of air cargo. And, you know, the attention we tried to draw was uh, aimed at particularly politicians, particularly at the financial institutions, particularly at our uh, passenger colleagues and, and airline heads, uh, just so that they understood the real value air cargo had, not just on the industry, uh, but on the fact that uh, this beloved uh, supply chain of ours helped to sustain human life other than uh, 
acting as a catalyst for world trade. Now, since the pandemic, of course, um, despite everything that's happened and what we're seeing, the sadness and the sorrow of uh, every human and life that's being lost and the destruction of the economies around the world and industries around the world, um, of course, our industry has taken a huge, huge toll in that. But the bright side, if there is such a thing, has been how air cargo has come to the salvation of so many around the world and how it's brought respite and, and helped to bring care and attention and medical treatment. Because without air cargo, you couldn't have had the number of survivors that have emerged through this pandemic. And so finally, I'd like to think that somebody is recognizing the importance of our supply chain amidst the catastrophic uh, impact that aviation has suffered through this. Uh, and I have um, obviously, like most people, cause for some concern as to what's going to emerge post this period. But when you think, you know, you've lost uh, somewhere in the region of uh, four and a half million flights um, thus far till the end of uh, June that would have been flying, then the effect on that and air cargo has been catastrophic. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Giz. That's uh, yeah, very, very salient words as to, as to what's going on at the moment. And, uh, you know, we certainly... Uh, pass on our regards to all of the staff and uh, all of the executives and staff right across the entire industry because we know these are very difficult times for aviation in general and, uh, and, and including air cargo. Um, Stan, perhaps you can give us a bit of an entree as well in terms of where you see things at the moment and uh, just in general terms, uh, the, the state of the air cargo industry. I obviously have a lot of discussion I want to have with you gentlemen today, but uh, just a scene set up from you, Stan, as to where things are at currently. Well, you know, like, like you can't help but wonder sometimes about how um, we missed, missed the ball on a lot of things. I mean, the deficiencies that are inherent in the system have been exposed, you know, really badly. If you look at what's happening in China with the, with the tremendous backlogs in the airports, the inability to get trucks into the airport, uh, um, things like that are, are, are showing that, you know, things like E-Freight, which, which we should have been em embarking on many, many years ago, uh, just, just weren't picked up and they're not there. Um, the system isn't geared to, to uh, what's going on at the moment. That's the first thing. Um, things like COVID and, and paper handling, for example, uh, you know, paper, paper is, is a, a great conduit for, for the disease. Things like the digitization and e-commerce, it's a shame we didn't have that in place uh, uh, like we should have years ago. That's, that's one thing, one deficiency that's been highlighted. Um, but the other thing is, uh, what, what's, because we talk a lot to the actual importers and, and exporters, the beneficial owners of the cargo. And uh, what they've what they've uh, told me is that what's really scaring them is all of their lean production and uh, just in time philosophies and everything else are going to have to go out the window in the future. And what's going to become the new normal in air cargo as a consequence of what's happening will depend on the security of the supply chain and and the air supply chain. They now understand how critical it was. So I think there's going to be a complete rethinking 
um, airports uh, are going to have to look at uh, cargo not as a real estate transaction in the future if they want to support their customer base. Uh, the airlines themselves, uh, they're going to be faced with uh, new challenges with uh, international tourism, surely going to be the last thing that comes back. Um, and, and, you know, when you talk about Rolls-Royce the other day, for example, saying uh, they're laying off 9,000 people because the uh, manufacturers are saying three to five years before the recovery comes. Uh, I tend to think that Rolls-Royce and Boeing and Airbus, when they're talking together, uh, probably are more looking with a, a less uh, filtered uh, eye on what's going to happen. And uh, when they say three to five years, I tend to believe it versus maybe an airline who wants to be optimistic and, and keep everybody's mood up. If we're really looking at three to five years in supply chain logistics and air cargo, we've got to look at a new business model, not a new business plan. Okay. Thanks, Dan. Um, Ram, you with, uh, you're the uh, DSV for... Um Emirates for 20 years, uh, very well known around the world as well as the other gentlemen here. Uh, you've got a very, still got a lot of connections right across the industry. Uh, what's your take on where we're at before I uh, go into a round of discussion around uh, how we move forward, what the options are and what the Brains Trust has got for us? Sure enough, Kim. Uh, uh, in fact, I was there for almost 28 years in, uh, in, in Emirates. Um, um, and have had the opportunity to see several of these uh, kind of uh, crises, um, and it was always crisis management. I mean, usually in our business, we are more mostly in crisis management, and we actually excel in uh, in cases in situations like this. Uh, if you look at the the air cargo industry in itself, in fact, I mean, when, when I say air cargo, I should be saying cargo industry as a whole. Uh, they tend to come in on its own when the chips are down. Uh, a, a, a thing like a pandemic where, uh, or earthquake somewhere, or some kind of calamities, that's where you know the, the, the logistics industry really, really comes into its own and tries to support the frontliners who are trying to manage the business. Our hearts go out to all the people. Um, in the medical field, I mean, who are actually risking their life in uh, um, trying to save the humankind. Uh, but they wouldn't be able to do what they are doing uh, unless the unsung heroes uh, in the logistics industry actually back them up. So it's always, uh, the, the cargo industry is there in the background, but people don't tend to recognize that they are there. Um, but um, in a Pandemic situation like this, uh, the air cargo industry and the other logistics uh, um, uh, elements which go on to support the transportation chain all come into own. They tend to I mean, fall off the cliff when the economy sort of collapses like in 2008, 2009, etc. But today the situation is that uh, um, a lot of capacity has been taken off the market because the passenger side of the business, I mean, in fact, aviation has been brought down to its knees. Uh, that has, of course, affected the air cargo side of the business. Those who have freighters, they did, um, and they are doing pretty well in supporting the the the, uh, the industry in itself. But, however, uh, you, you can see the ingenuity of um, the 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 industry in itself. Uh, they have now 
commission the passenger airplanes in hauling cargo. So taking off some of that uh, shortage of capacity uh, by uh, creating these passenger airplanes to support the freighters operating around the network. So all in all, um, the, the total volume of cargo in the world has gone shrunk, but so has the capacity. At the moment, we are seeing that the supply and demand uh, equation is slightly off uh, in, in favor of um, uh, supply uh, uh, demand. So uh, the air cargo industry right now is trying its best to support whatever they can um, the entire uh, the world um, economy as such. And it will continue to do that um, for the next couple of years, or at least for three to four years, uh, we are going to see that the air cargo is going to be the backbone uh, for of the aviation industry in itself. As passengers tend to come back slowly, um, they are all going to rely more on air cargo. Um, the, the, the danger is, of course, I mean, as the airlines are shrinking, and I hope they don't take away um, a large number of the wide-bodied cargo-friendly airplanes uh, off the market, um, but uh, all in all, I think um, uh, the air cargo industry within the aviation industry is uh, in, in, in much better shape than the airlines themselves. Okay. Thanks, Ram. Um, I wanted to throw to you, Des, and then to each of you for a pretty short, sharp answer to this one, because a lot of us hear and see in the media all the time about uh, government bailouts for airlines um, around the world at the moment. I mean, in Australia at the moment, um, Virgin is an administration. There's many examples of this. There's surprisingly about 18 different parties uh, were wanting to bid initially to get into the data room on Virgin. I think there are three um, uh, parties at the moment down to the final three this week for another week or so before they make a decision. Um, before there's some issues around uh, liquidity. Um, and two of those bidders are from organisations that are already in the airline aviation industry. So interestingly, uh, not for the faint-hearted, but for the educated to come in and, and look to uh, these rescue missions and invest. Uh, so Des, back to you. What's your view, just very briefly, on the government bailouts? Are they a good idea? Are they causing false economies? Are they something that's absolutely needed because of the essential nature of, of this industry? Let us know what you think. Well, um, my, my, my point is uh, quite simple, uh, Kim. Uh, all the airlines once upon a time were nationalized institutions, okay? And, um, and after deregulation, you know, they started to come uh, out of uh, that and became private enterprises, um, some of them. But one thing that never, ever left was uh, national pride about having your own airline. And I think a lot of nations uh, did not want to see anything but anything negative happen to their flag, national flag carrier. So despite the fact that you've had rules around um, um, fair trade and, uh, and rules around uh, and antitrust rules particularly, but more importantly, you've had uh, EU rules about cross-subsidies and state subsidies, you're finding uh, that there has been ongoing subsidies of one description or another all around 
uh, and throughout the last 10, 20 years. And as we go through one crisis, it's happened. So, A, I'm not surprised that that's uh, occurred. Uh, but despite the fact that you're throwing sometimes good money uh, over bad, I think you will find that, uh, um, that those airlines that can emerge and emerge profitably and efficiently will survive. And no matter how much state aid is thrown into some of the others, uh, it is, isn't going to help uh, keep them at, uh, afloat or at bay um, for too much longer in the future. Uh, Stan, um, you've uh, had experiences as a, as a senior executive with a number of airlines over the years. Um, what, what are your views on this government uh, government input or not? Well, the interesting thing is when I was working with KLM, well, 32 years I put in there, um, we prided ourselves on the fact that we were independent and we were run like an entrepreneurial uh, business and the government didn't interfere in anything. As a matter of fact, with Martin Air as a competitor at the time, anytime we would uh, say anything, they would say, you know, go solve it yourself. Don't involve us. Um, I've always been against state aid in airlines um, going back many years ago uh, because, quite frankly, it, it, it pollutes the, the whole environment. Um, the problem we have is, is bilateral rules. Uh, all the rules of the last 40, 50 years uh, have allowed a lot of things to happen that shouldn't happen. Uh, you know, it's, it's just, there's no getting around it. But the, when we had the first um, hints of this coronavirus, uh, cor coronavirus uh, epidemic, going where it went, uh, the U.S. started the ball rolling with a $50 billion uh, bailout, they called it, or a grant, whatever it might turn out to be, uh, to three of the most profitable airlines in the world. And now uh, I, I can sit here on the border with, with uh, the U.S. and say Air Canada is not a state-run airline. It's, it's definitely not. Uh, we have WestJet and we have a few other airlines up here in Canada. Um, what are we going to do? Uh, when, the, when this post-pandemic world comes, if uh, we find out because of uh, state aid that was given to uh, KLM Air France, for example, um, uh, that the national carrier of Canada is going to become United American or Delta or KLM or Air France because Air Canada is gone because the government didn't help it. Um, so I, I'm against it, but I'm for it when it has to be used to bring a level playing field to, to everything. There are certain things that um, uh, I, I don't like about not giving state aid, and one of them is the loss of talent. People are going to be forced to leave the company because of the economic position that the airline is put into without state aid, and you're going to lose a lot of good people, and normally it's the people who can find a job somewhere else or who are the best people who leave. It's not the, the ones uh, that maybe uh, should leave or, or if you had a choice would leave. Uh, it, it's 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 just wrong, in my opinion, uh, to to do anything but not support your airline. Um, in the case of Air France KLM, uh, the, basically prior to this, uh, thirty percent of the joint shares were owned by the Dutch and the French government. So I mean, they they have a vested interest in putting, a, I think you've added up ten billion into Air France and probably uh, seven or ten that's going to go into KLM. They own part of the shares. Lufthansa just announced a $10 billion, 7 or 8 billion euro uh, subsidy to Lufthansa. But at the same time, they took a 20% equity stake in Lufthansa. Now, that is completely polluting uh, the future market uh, positioning of these airlines if they have access to this, this money. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't.
Okay, well, thanks. Thanks for that roundup and that summation. Um, Graham, uh, your, your point of view uh, is, uh, you, you know, you, you've been with Emirates for nearly 30 years and uh, Emirates is the pride of, uh, of Dubai. And uh, so what's your view on the, on the support they're receiving? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, Stan and Des have uh, spoken quite well um, about their views. And uh, what I want to add on is, but I'm not a great fan of um, uh, subsidies. Um, we have never, you know, as long as we, I was there, the Emirates was never sub subsidized. It, it was, it's hard to go out uh, and um, uh, fight in the market um, and what competition does is it actually allows you to uh, become better than others. Um, and competition is also beneficial to, um, uh, to the, the market um, in general for the consumers. Um, having said that, um, it is a we are in a situation where the entire world has come to a grinding halt. Just not the aviation industry, but the world in itself. The world, uh, the, uh, the commerce and trade and tourism all revolve around uh, connectivity. You let the airlines go down and the world comes to a grinding halt. That's the reality of the situation. And in a situation like that, um, you know, uh, any kind of help that uh, an airline uh, which connects uh, people around the world can get uh, to help stand up is a good thing. Um, whether it should be given as a, a subsidy or whether it's given as a, a kind of a loan which can, has to be paid back, I would rather prefer the latter so that, uh, you know, it becomes a level playing field. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting, the very people who were... Um, complaining that uh, some of the Gulf carriers are being subsidized are the first one out there to receive those subsidies and uh, of which a lot of that might, might not be returned back to the government. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting situation that we are all in, but the survival of um, the airlines is very critical to the world. Thanks, Ram. Um, I We've, we've heard a lot about um, the way that the various players in the industry around air cargo, so aviation sector in particular, um, but, but specifically around the air freight organisations, um, ground handling organisations, airports, the infrastructure holders and owners um, are going to relook going to need to relook and, and, and remap how the industry is going to function moving forward. Um, and I know, uh, Stan Sassy, your organisation has recently published a couple of white papers, one of which um, has a number of uh, opinions around this, this particular issue. Um, go back to you, Des. Um, you, you for, as the head of cargo priata for a number of years, for over 10 years, I think, You've worked with all of these players in the market for many years throughout your career, um, not just from being an IATA. Uh, what, what what's your big picture? And again, we'll try and keep this brief because there's so much content I really want to talk about with you, gentlemen. Um, give, give me a brief 
overhead of what you think the big ticket items are for those, all of the players moving forward to, to how they need to operate. I'll try and keep it brief, Kim, because I think you're right, you know, uh, to try and shorten the, uh, uh, the outlook. Look, um, the air cargo supply chain is, uh, as you know, is a, is a, it works on the basis of uh, collaboration between five, six ent entities, and you've named them all in your um, in your preamble. So when you look at whether you're an airline, a forwarder, a ground handler, a trucker, a customs agent, a broker, uh, then you've got the shipper and the consignee at the other end. Then you look at what connects all those dots, right? The uh, actual supply chain. The way we look at it is that um, air cargo is going to have to become completely integrated. And you're going to have to, in order to get the efficiency uh, in the supply chain, you're going to have to eliminate a lot of what I call the cost-bearing um, activities and actions that took place hitherto. And in order to simplify that, uh, simplify that entire process, uh, because to gain efficiency, what you're effectively offering is a reduction in time for the end-to-end -end supply chain. In order for that to happen, it's completely digitized. Uh, in order for that to happen, you've got to eliminate countless uh, duplication of tasks. Uh, and that's in the handling process as well as in the paper process. And so when you look at everything that's going to evolve, I believe in the next, it won't have to wait long, and I honestly believe it will come in the next two, three, three years. A lot of those steps will be removed and they'll become far more integrated in the process. And that's going to happen and that has to happen. Dan? Okay, well, you're, you're, this is a three-year-old story, four-year-old story for me because I've been, I've been uh, uh, preaching to uh, sometimes the converted, but most likely uh, people who are just oblivious to the fact that they're, uh, uh, they're still living with a business model that's 40 years old and they, and they still think that they can do it. Uh, we work in a system of silos, unfortunately, uh, be it in uh, industry associations, uh, be it uh, in, in uh, training, uh, be it in, in the way we handle a business. Um, a lot of the models of the past were based on uh, a complete lack of transparency, which in course, uh, of course, in, in that lack of transparency, there was ability to make a, a margin on the difference between buy and sell and live on it and sometimes um, you know, the, the tactics that were used in order to, to, you know, keep that model going, uh, were, were pretty vicious between all those silos. Um, the freight forwarders and, and, and IATA, for example, starting lawsuits with each other over things. Um, the, uh, miss, you know, naming of, of a freight forwarder as an agent of an airline, which has never been the case for many, many years, but they still cling to that. And, and use it as an excuse, for example, to to have a relationship. Um, the biggest thing for me is the fact that we, uh, you know, they talk today a lot in the press about passenger bubbles. Well, uh, the terminology that we've been uh, pushing for years is data logistics corridors. Um, when you do, when you start looking at a data logistic corridor between for air cargo stakeholders, for the beneficial owners of the cargo, the shippers, the importers. Uh, what you start looking at is is a system that is so easy to to replicate in a virtual way versus what the integrators do. I mean, we could solve half of our problems if we just, as a scheduled air cargo industry, if we just looked at what was being done by the integrators today. I mean, just move to that 
and automatically we would help a lot uh, of how we do it. Now, how do we go about it? We engage partners in the industry in the various sectors that uh, that um, uh, Des spoke about, and if those partners want to join in in making that 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 data logistic corridor possible for an for a shipper or an importer, uh, fine. If they don't, well, they'll have to leave. Um, I, I'm a, a big believer in there's there's 99.9% uh, .9 of the success that we can have in the future is going to be based on what happens on the ground. Uh, a triple seven of of Cathay Pacific departing Hong Kong or a British Airways triple seven departing Hong Kong and arriving in Heathrow, the aluminum's the same. It's what you do with it when it gets on the ground at both ends or leaves, and that's where the mistakes are being made uh, by the scheduled cargo industry. They don't even understand the value of the product they own, and that's that goes right up to the professionalism of the cargo management and ability to get that message up to the C-suite, the CFO, the CEO. And I think that uh, that's something that uh, uh, when I talked about before, when I said that the business model has to change, it's not simply redoing your business plan. It's the whole model of how scheduled airlines can absolutely do a much better job and a more uh, profitable job in the future if they just take a look at what's possible. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Stan. So, Ram, we're hearing from Stan and from Des about pretty much new blueprints, new, not just filling around the edges and, and tweaking things here. We're talking about fairly major radical rationalisation, uh, restructuring and, and recalibration of the way business is being done. It's fairly significant. Um, your perspective? Yeah, you know, I think Des alluded to that. I mean, you know, the, uh, the digitization has become so important. I mean, the change is going to be forced on this industry. There are several elements involved in the, in the, the uh, supply chain in itself. Right now, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, trying to make a buck out of each other a kind of uh, attitude, you know, which doesn't really work because, I mean, uh, what Des and Stan talked about, uh, a seamless integration. And integration has got to be based on processes and uh, remuneration based on services rendered uh, rather than, uh, you know, trying to make a buck out of each other. Um, so, in fact, I mean, if we throw away the the labels of freight forwarders, the airlines, the handling agents, whatever it is, and just say, have a simple kind of a relationship, uh, contractor and supplier, just contractor and supplier. So it, and you become a chain. It doesn't matter where the contact point is. The, wherever the contact is, they become the contractor, everybody else becomes a supplier. So it's kind of an interchangeable rule. And the only way we can achieve that is uh, by digitization. And uh, if you if you look at the e-commerce, I mean, they they are probably driving the change, and they, you know they they are driving such a change uh, in, in such a way that even the integrators sometimes struggle to keep pace with that. So what we are now looking at is creating a marketplace. And within the marketplace, you, uh, if you look at Amazon, for example, I mean, they have created this platform. Uh, and people say Amazon is an IT company rather than an e-commerce retailer. But they are, they are all of the above. What they have done is 
they have presented a platform, uh, um, uh, a front end to the customer uh, I, I, with the choice of what they uh, were, what's available. And once the customer clicks, everything back end starts happening uh, and they are so integrated that all those uh, um, uh, uh, people who need to be involved in transportation of that parcel uh, or that package or whatever, wherever it's coming from and wherever it's going to start happening. There's no branding out there. The branding is Amazon out there, the front end. And there are airlines involved, there are freight forwarders involved, there are facilitation centers involved, there are ground handling agents involved, but that's all transparent to the, the, the end customer. So we need to have a platform like that in, in front of us, and there are people like uh, Freighters, people like Cargo.One, who are creating that platform, and probably they are the ones who are going to help uh, the air cargo uh, industry evolve. But to get there, they have to embrace digitization. We started the the the, uh, the e-freight the, uh, process in 2004. 16 years later, we are we are nowhere close to where we want to be. So now this whole COVID-19 situation is changing the dynamics of the way, the way that uh, the world will operate in the future. So if you want to be in the future, you have to change. You have to digitize yourself. And digitization is just not only in the air cargo industry. I mean, digitization is happening in our daily life. Uh, this has also forced people to stay home and work from home. That is a part of digitization. I mean, we have now uh, created digital workplace. So it should be easy for us now to make that transition in the air cargo industry, to bring that transition, apply uh, 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 what they are doing in their personal life to their business life. And the integration has got to be very, very seamless. We should be working at the collective uh, efficiency rather than at the individual level. Individual level, you might be very, very um, um, efficient, but your efficiency can actually add on inefficiency to the next uh, um, element in the supply chain. And then what they do is, if everybody starts becoming efficient on their own, you actually integrate inefficiency and make inefficiency more inefficient. So you have to actually look at the overall supply chain and see what needs to be done and keep it simple and just, and digitization gives you that capability to you know, simply create that transparency to so everybody is on the same page. You take the complexity out of the business and this is why I mean I call this now an acceleration of evolution. Those who change, those who evolve, will survive. Those who don't, they'll be uh, extinct. Thanks, Ram. Uh, I, I hear you all talking about the need for this change and for digitization. Many organisations are well and truly on that journey, and a lot of them aren't. But it seems clear from all of you that you see digitization of the uh, of the supply chain as being very important. Um, recent days, we've heard just a little bit of a, a sidebar issue, perhaps, but I'd like a quick input from each of you on this. Um, we've heard about Microsoft and FedEx um, joining forces 
arguably to compete with um, Amazon and, and Alibaba and, and whoever else. Um, Des, uh, your reflections, any comments at all on the, on that move? Uh, a good move? Was it, a, was it due to take place or is it a catch-up move? What's your view? No, no, no. I think, I think it's a good move. Look, um, the more and uh, the bigger the technology companies that gets into, uh, into collaborative uh, mode with uh, even we're talking about the IT, the big IT companies that are in our space, uh, so much the better. So I tend to welcome any form of closer collaboration and integration. Uh, everything that drives enhanced values, enhanced uh, uh, reach and, uh, and efficiency. And what it also helps to do uh, in time is to drive down costs. You know, we've got um, in uh, just to give you a very, very quick example, uh, Kim, we have in our industry um, something bordering on 40 to 50 different IT suppliers all trying to provide a service of connectivity for messaging between all these supply chain players. Can you imagine that? Now, every time you try to link a message, there's a cost element to that message. That cost is unknown to any operator or any airline CEO to this day. So when you take a look at what, if you can eliminate all of that nonsense today, that's just one small part of streamlining our supply chain and making it digitally more efficient. Then you take into account real estate prices for running um, cargo terminals on airport, huge real estate price. And then of course, what they're doing is replicating what was done off airport by the logistics player. So, you know, the whole element, and I'm, di uh, I'm slightly digressing to your question, but I think that the greater the involvement of the big band, the big uh, uh, providers of technology solutions and services into our industry, the better. Stan, your view, um, just a reflection on the, on the Microsoft FedEx one first and then maybe the bigger picture. I think that there's a bigger bigger play than than uh, what Amazon's doing in logistics between Microsoft and Amazon. I mean, Amazon is the biggest supplier of IT to the U.S. military, as an example. So there's a much bigger play there than just what we're talking about in supply chain logistics. <clears throat> and I don't think uh, the fact of Huawei and 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 what's going on in the U.S. Uh, um, and and the, the political imp implications of things are are not in the background of all this as well. So I'm a bit I'm always a bit suspect when I, we get announcements like this and how it's really going to change my day to day in the, in the coming uh, the coming weeks. Google, for example, uh, Amazon, uh, the players are big players, uh, and Microsoft is a supplier and a player. But I mean. I would suspect there's a bigger play in the background than than just what we're talking about day to day. Should there be 50 people out there trying to supply uh, a new way of uh, rewriting the world? Uh, I, I agree with Des. It's it's just ludicrous. Uh, you know, uh, if you look on a macro sense, uh, we're we're into the fifth stage, I believe, of the, of digitization, shall we say, in in our life. I mean, who? Who today would, would think that a five-year-old kid is walking around with an iPhone that has more computing power and everything else than, than, uh, than what the first space shuttle had? Yet, we're still talking about the first cycle in, in air cargo about how we handle digitization. I mean, some legacy systems 
uh, ground handling companies that have to have five computer terminals because each airline doesn't want to have a common one, et cetera, et cetera. We're still in the bush leaks when it comes to scheduled airlines. I mean, it really is. So, uh, you know, it's it's just ridiculous in my mind that we can't, uh, for example, get the airports and the airlines and, and the uh, GHAs, the ground handling agents, to understand that if they provided a seamless service and somehow agreeing amongst those three entities that uh, they alone uh, are the ones who can really make digitization happen. If an airport says to a, a, a company that wants to build a new modern cargo terminal, uh, I'm only interested in concession fees and the rent you're going to pay me, well, that, that warehouse is not going to become a marketing tool if it's not fully digitized for the future, but they don't understand that. Uh, likewise, airlines, if they're trying to develop a product portfolio, the product portfolio is fine in your hub if you have digitization to your standards, but, you know, there are spokes involved in every hub. So what goes in has to come out in, in just as good a condition and, and, you know, again, speed, transparency and quality. You don't want claims. You don't want it if it's going through a hub to sit there for six hours and, and you don't want uh, the customer to say that if I use FedEx or UPS, I can see where it is at any time. I can know what the temperature is. I can check on my tilt meter. Um, if I use your competitors, why can't I do it with you? Well, you can only do it if, like these two gentlemen just said, <clears throat> we agree on something, uh, on a way of talking to each other digitally so that a seamless uh, offering can be made to the people who want to still use air cargo. And that's that's an important point, I think. What air cargo is going to exist in the future, the people that still want to use it are absolutely going to want to use it because they need to have it. And if they need to have it and your competitor is going to be Amazon, Alibaba, who control, uh, you know, between Amazon and DHL, uh, be it taking airplanes from Atlas, Kalida and all the rest of it, uh, probably are going to control 60, 70 percent of the world air freighter fleet in the future. So how is a scheduled airline going to compete if they don't even embark on something as simple of getting out of the first generation of digitization and moving forward? I was at that meeting in 2004 that, that uh, Ram was talking about. And I think it was in Kuala Lumpur, if I remember correctly. Lisbon, yeah. And, and uh, you know, it, it was an afterthought of the director general of IATA who has, was mandated to have something to talk about. And they said, oh, yeah, let's do E-Freight. I mean, it's just ridiculous that today they're, they're bragging about we're, we're handling e-airway bills. Well, gentlemen, the first e-airway bill was transmitted in Canada in 1988. 1988, the first e-airway bill facility system was available. And uh, I still remember the name of the guy and, and, and working on the project. Uh, and, and today it's we're bragging because 60% of the world is using an e-airway bill. We, we've got to get out of the dark ages. Des, uh, prior to the end, well, up till the end of last year, and since this pandemic hit us, there was a lot of move around not just the air cargo space, um, but uh, shipping and across the broader supply chain of more companies, some of the bigger organisations globally with infrastructure, asset heavy, looking to uh, flex their muscles and um, control more of the supply chain if you like, across the uh, the type of Amazon or Alibaba model, um, right from upstream supply chain all the way down through um, integration and, and down to 
the downstream supply chain all the way through the last mile. Uh, have you do, do you think that the pandemic has had any major effect on that trend, uh, or will that trend continue? Um, Kim, for me, uh, that trend is going to stay. You know, I think anybody that's um, um, has size and uh, reach is going to want to continue to extend that reach and extend that size. I think what they're going to be able to do in future is just do it a little bit smarter. Um, and you've got to learn. You've got to learn by some mistakes that sometimes bigger is not best, you know. And if you've got a size of a uh, ship, uh, it's no point building an even bigger ship and an even bigger ship uh, when there's such a surplus of capacity existing at that time just because you think you can start to take a, a more dominant share of the marketplace. I think what you've got to do, you can grow in size, but you've got to grow not just um, in terms of your uh, capacity to provide, but you've got to do things a lot more efficiently. I'll just uh, give you an example. You know, we're going through a, a complete... Uh, uh, you know what they say about what goes around comes around? Uh, when the industry started, uh, our industry started, we uh, started carrying small parcels because we had small airplanes. Then we got bigger airplanes like the 747, so we went into bigger commodities, etc., and so forth. What we never invested in at any time was in our technology. So we carried on with this size, meant everything. Um, and then, of course, people realized we were so goddamn inefficient. They invested uh, in areas of technology to provide an end-to-end -end tracking. Um, and, of course, guess what? We lost all the small-end and high-yielding elements of our business, okay, to this new breed called the integrators. Now, isn't it uncanny that you take 30-year cycle or a 40-year cycle and guess what the world of tomorrow is going to be? It's this small parcels returning in the form of e-commerce that everybody wants to get back into. And so now size isn't the matter. It's about the ability to lift, but to do it efficiently. So that to me is what's going to drive the need to invest. And you don't, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And if you want to be able to gain all the efficiencies and you want to be able to gain that end-to-end -end control and the ability to, to give transparency to everybody that interacts with you from the beginner to the, uh, uh, from the shipper to the uh, consignee or the seller to the buyer, then you're going to have to provide that. So to me, I think if you're big, they'll continue to want to stay big because they believe that's the way to, uh, uh, to remain dominant. But I think if you are small, and you've got agility and you've got efficiency, there's room for you to survive. Well, a couple of things in um, on the forwarding side, it was interesting about uh, two years ago, <clears throat> excuse me, about two years ago, I spent some time on the road on behalf of one of the major airlines uh, because they were looking to get some independent opinion on where the market was going. And I was talking to a lot of freight forwarders and they said that they were going they were they were in the biggest dilemma of their of their life, uh, trying to uh, understand how to handle e-commerce, um, and it was decimating their their margins and yields because basically, uh, if you can move something on e-commerce um, with complete transparency, well, and that complete transparency also exposed the pricing that was possible in order to move goods <clears throat> from A to B. So what happened is the freight forwarders were telling me that uh, whereas before 
they were able to make fantastic margins on consolidations and consolidations used to take six, eight days to get delivered airport to airport, the famous studies that, that went on at the time. Uh, e-commerce operators were offering two to three days uh, service for roughly the same price as a consolidation. So they, they wondered how to adapt to that. Uh, the second thing they said was that uh, they had invested in infrastructure. That infrastructure had to be fed. So the only way then to, to get back to making a profitable return on investment was to increase scale. Hence, you get a lot of consolidation in the freight forwarding industry. The, the DSVs buying Panalpina and, and, and other companies as an example. So size doesn't necessarily mean that the business case is uh, driven by anything that's beneficial to the exporter or importer. It's basically a survival mode by these companies and how they're going to grow. The guys that are the smaller people, are, are facing a problem because they can't afford the digitization and the and the uh, uh, systems that they need in order to compete with Amazon and Alibaba and JD.com and all the rest of them, Lazada, you name them. There's, I think, uh, 110,000 individual outlets that sell e-commerce. So how do they compete with them if they don't have the capital that these big guys have? That's another dilemma for them. Um, the third thing is the integrators. When we did some work with the integrators recently, they had the system but it was a closed loop system. And it, what, what happened is all of a sudden they realized that they were in the B2B business, nine to five, five days a week. I come by three o'clock and pick up your goods and at 3.02, if you're not ready, I leave and you have no choice but to accept that. And because it's a completely closed loop system, you pay my costs. Therefore, it's, it's totally justified, the, shall we say, $90 to move an envelope uh, on a on a flight between, uh, let's say, London and New York. So they, they got away with that for a while, but the B2C and B2B business is, is five times bigger than B2C. Uh, B2B customers started uh, saying, I'm not going to give it to you anymore because I can give it to Amazon or DHL Express and I can get it there cheaper and faster. So a lot of things on size uh, of, of the organization, these big boys have got to re reevaluate their business model as well. Um, we, we, going back to what Des said, uh, and Ram as, as well, uh, sorry, Des in the past, we went through three phases in the past that caused us. I, mean, I remember when I was in KLM, when I was running Asia, we used to have 125 to 150 airway bills on a 747 leaving Hong Kong, going back to Canada, uh, back to uh, Amsterdam, sorry. Uh, by the time uh, I left KLM, about six years later, we were down to about eight to ten airwaybills because consolidation had taken it away. Now, it's not just the integrators took it away. We lost the small packages to consolidation from the freight forwarders. We lost the small packages and high yield to the integrators. So we had two people attacking our business model, and we did nothing about it. Well, the only reason consolidation ever uh, became the money owner, owner uh, the uh, return that it gave to the freight forwarders was because in the brilliance of I IATA one day sitting around, we said we could save handling costs if we introduced a pallet program. Uh, that's the kind of silliness that, that went on at the time with people who I must say at the time I was part of it, but not in a decision making uh, uh, position. But we, that, that was the whole driver behind palletization, close down the handling at the airport and save money. So, you know, we've made a lot of mistakes in the past, and now uh, we're going to make another one if we don't change the way we do business. It's as simple as that. Air Canada, uh, Swiss, uh, British Airways, Lufthansa, 
without cargo contribution uh, on their passenger flights in the past couple of years, uh, with passenger yields, you, you could fly from the west coast of the United States to China for $750 return. Now, without cargo contribution, they couldn't make money in the past. Just imagine what's going to happen in the future, like Ram said, if they don't take cargo more seriously. Size isn't the solution. Uh, value is the solution. Not volume, value. Thanks, Stan. Uh, Ram, just to wrap up the session, just briefly then, um, the question being this trend towards some of the bigger players looking to extend their control over the, the supply chain and hence supply and, and demand through customer, the customer side. Uh, has that changed as a result of the, the pandemic or is, is that, as, as Des said, is that trend going to continue? Some of them are going to continue, but uh, you need to look at the bigger picture. Uh, of what is happening. Uh, forget about the big and the small uh, operators, etc. Let's now look at what's likely to happen to the market. Now, this COVID-19 has exposed a few um, um, dependencies that the world has suddenly begun to realize that um, the entire world was depending on one country to produce their most of their uh, uh, items, whether it's industrial or consumer items or whatever it is. Now that is going to create, uh, in a, a lot of the countries are now saying, right, now we can't have this kind of uh, uh, dependency on one area or one country or one region, because anything like a pandemic like this brings the, the, uh, everything to a grinding halt. So what is gonna happen in the, um, in the, in, in the uh, medium to longer term is that there is going to be a lot of nearshoring and reshoring activity that's going to go on. So you might have large airplanes at the moment, I mean, are, are dedicated on China to the world routing, but suddenly, I mean, you're going to see in about five to six years time, that's going to change because the traditional supply chain operations are going to change. Um, so what happens then? So that is what we need to start working towards. And uh, uh, people like uh, DHL, people like Schenkers, et cetera, they are already uh, ahead of the game in, 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 uh, as a multinational in the forwarding industry. They're, they're looking at all those things. But uh, as airlines, we, we are, now there are two segments of capacity that comes into the market. One is via the passenger bellies. The other one is uh, the freighters. The freighters are more like conveyor belts. I mean, we can actually very, very quickly change them wherever we want, whereas the passenger capacity is generally fixed. Um, so it, it's a question of now we, uh, us looking at how best can we synchronize the, uh, the conveyor belt operation versus fixed operation uh, in, to deal with uh, the kind of stuff that's going on. Uh, both Stan and uh, Des alluded to I me. Mean, now we're going all going back into the smaller, smaller part, um, uh, parcels type of traffic. Now let's look at the bigger picture. The traditional cargo, the traditional supply chain, the growth is in lower single digit. The only thing that is actually growing in double digits um, uh, is the e-commerce. And that, I think, will continue to drive the growth of our business. So uh, for the consolidations that um, uh, Stan was talking about, 
that is going to be a, a part of the history. Look, we, are, we haven't yet seen technology really uh, coming into play here. We have the 3D printing that could uh, come into play. Uh, that, that is uh, coming up. Uh, the best analogy I can give you about was is 70s and 80s and before that, we used to have newspapers being printed, edited, published in one place and transported to various places. Uh, some people got it overnight, some people got it in two days, some people got it in the evenings. Now we are in a situation in industrial application of 3D printing is just on our doorsteps at the moment, which means you can centrally design um, a product and print it uh, locally anywhere in the world, just like the newspapers today. And you, uh, the, uh, the Financial Times, for example, printed, you know, edited and print, uh, published in uh, London, and are printed in, uh, um, say, um, uh, Canada, can now add on a couple of local pages of news, local Canadian news. So that actually increases in value of what Financial Times is doing. And that is what the 3D printing is going to do to our business. So what happens to the regular supply chain? You know, every little item that you take, you know, the, the mouse has got, I mean, uh, 15 different parts there, and that, that, that's 15 different supply chains operating in, in uh, crisscrossing across the world to be assembled somewhere. But in the 3D printing, it could be just one piece printed totally. So uh, those are the things that, uh, that our industry should be thinking about. How do we manage and how do we have the right capacity at the right place at the right time? Now, right capacity is very, very critical. If you have overcapacity, then you're shooting yourself in your pocket, uh, in your feet, because at the end of the day, competition will dictate what you can charge for, and that means like what had happened in the last few years, the airlines were not making money. They have this extremely um, capital-intensive asset, but your returns were dictated by the market. That has changed for the next three to four years time, although the volumes of cargo is also shrinking, but so has the capacity, but that will keep uh, the cargo rates because the demand is going to be higher than the supply at a pace. And that is a good time for, the, for um, the, this industry to be able to now look forward and invest into the future in right-sizing the capacity, right-sizing the operation, digitization of um, the, the operation, which will add capacity. There's another thing that's happening in the next three, four years. Any company or any country, companies are, are laden with debts. Countries are, uh, um, their coffers are getting empty because they're supporting um, uh, all, all the, the, the economy. So they have to recoup. All, all, all these um, uh, revenues or money or whatever you call it. The only way you can do that is to become more cost efficient because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, consumer can only afford X uh, amount of um, uh, pricing. And within that, how best can you uh, survive, repay your debts, at the same time be able to invest in new, uh, in new so that you can evolve into the next stage? 
Well, thanks, Ram. And, and with that, I'm going to uh, wrap, wrap up today's uh, session. Uh, we've had some extremely erudite commentary, uh, uniquely experienced insight, opinions and views from all of you, Des Vitanis, uh, former head of uh, Cargo Fayata, Stan Wright uh, from SASE, in a number of senior airline roles over the years and, uh, and ran the, nearly the magic 30 years with EK Sky Cargo. Um, to you all, thank you for today's contribution. We respect the value of your time as we do with our audience. Thank you to our audience for joining us. I'm sure you gentlemen will pass on my, my regards and respect to everybody who has performed uh, uh, fantastically throughout the last few months in the air cargo space to support um, what has been happening globally, both from a government and, uh, and a uh, private sector perspective, to all of the players, to everybody, and uh, not the least of which is all of the broader uh, healthcare and, uh, and uh, first responder workers right throughout the world during this period. So thank you all again, gentlemen. Yeah, yes. um, and uh, thank you, uh, thank you, Des, thank you, Ram, thank you, Stan. Thank you, Kim. And we look forward to joining Cheers. you with another session as well, because we have a series lined up. Thanks. Oh, there's much more. There's much more to talk about. <laughs> All right. It's been Thanks. a pleasure. Thank you. Good to see you, Ram. Good to see you, Stan. See you guys. Yeah.